sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor at law at Chase Law School. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thanks, Trey. It's great to be back. And in kind of a fun twist, we're having a first ever Politics Guys three-way intro show. So I'm also going to introduce Michael Baranowski, who's a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Also, welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, Trey, Ken. Great to be here. This is a lot of fun. Uh, And I think the reason we're going to be talking here, listeners, is because it's been a big week. Uh, And the biggest item this week, and what we're going to be jumping straight into, is the Ukraine issue, the phone call, the impeachment proceedings, and and we're going to lead with this today. Uh, And so I want to kind of give listeners a little bit of a background on what's going on. Trey, before we do that, I hate to interrupt you, but we we actually have some big news on the show as well. We have a new executive producer, and I just wanted to call that out and thank uh, Daniel Toe, who's uh, welcome aboard, Daniel. And uh, when I did welcome him aboard personally, he said, thanks to all you politics guys and gals for making such an enjoyable show. I'm not a news junkie and have been especially turned off by most politics news because it often feels like a screaming nonsense. (laughs) <laughs> and he said, this show is not that, at least, you know, most of the time, guys, I say, but uh, <laughs> he says, not only is it balanced, but the hosts work hard to make sure their arguments are clear and well-rounded. Thanks again for this wonderful content. And also, in addition to Daniel, who we're really happy to have aboard, we also had a number of other uh, new supporters. We have Greg, who is supporting us recurring on PayPal, Tracy, and Mike on Patreon. And so I just want to thank all you. You guys really are who make the show possible. And uh, I, I know we got a lot to get to. Mike, you had a comment, You uh, and I will read that out next week. But thanks all so much. We really do appreciate it. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you, Mike. So to the story this week, um, and we're going to try to give a little bit of background on this because there's a lot going on here. Uh, and that's going to be we, our big story is Donald Trump's July 25th uh, phone call with Ukrainian leader um, Zelensky. Uh, what transpired is, is that we have a whistleblower. In this case, uh, it's the ability by law, by Congress set up so that individuals inside uh, the executive structure can report on wrongdoing. Um, when it doesn't include differences of opinion on public policy or and is it of an urgent nature to come before Congress. Congress wanted to kind of protect this, and that's what's happened. So the individual who this week's report is now public charges that President Donald Trump, on that July 25th phone call, was using his power of his office um, specifically to elicit help in damaging a political opponent Joe Biden. Uh, specifically, the individual says, quote, namely, he, President Trump, sought to preserve the Ukrainian leader, uh, to pressure the Ukrainian leader to take action to help President's 2020 re-election bid. How? Well, it goes into three major issues. One is initiating or continuing an investigation into Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. Secondly, having the Ukraine turnover servers that were potentially used by the Democratic National Committee. And third, to meet and or speak with President Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, 
and Attorney General Barr. In response to all this, the long, cautious Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, has launched an impeachment investigation of the president. And we'll talk more about the impeachment process itself in a moment. But the White House and President Trump then on Wednesday morning, as a way to try to tamp this down, uh, released their own account of the call. Instead of tamping down the issue, it only led to new issues, namely the problem involving his personal lawyer in the matter. Trump says in his own account that he would wanted to get some favors before he was going to allow any more anti-tank missiles to be bought by the Ukraine for use against Russia. It would then be this Democrats mauled over impeachment questions that President Trump in the White House, still at the United Nations, would re- release the fully declassified transcript of his call. The House and Senate then voted to turn over the whistleblower report, and we now have that impeachment process potentially moving forward while President Trump has turned back again to the argument of quote-unquote presidential harassment. Mike, Ken, there is so much here, and that's just scratching the surface of it. So who of you would like to lead off on what you think about this? I want to let you guys go first. Ken, why don't you go ahead and start start us off on that? Okay, well, I guess as the one lawyer among the three of us, I could say a little bit about the the legal aspects of it. Um, So uh, with impeachment, you know, there's sort of a couple ways of thinking about it. Um, Some people think about it as a somewhat legalistic kind of proceeding where there'd have to be proof of a crime. And I think for people who think about it that way, um, the crime here is part of the campaign finance law. There's a federal statute at 52 U.S. Code Section 30121. Uh, And it says it shall be unlawful for a foreign national, directly or indirectly, to make a contribution or donation of money or other thing of value in connection with a federal, state, or local election. And uh, providing opposition research of the type that the president called for um, would count as a thing of value. So he was really, um, to to some extent, trying to solicit uh, um, a thing of value from a foreign national. And that that would certainly be a crime. And then I think, you know, more generally... um, when people think about the standards for impeachment, uh, the the, I think you know people. It's a it's it is a political process, and in terms of um, what kind of political principles are should be brought to bear on it, uh, the, the 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 essence of it would be if someone has really proved themselves unfit to lead the the, the country. And I think a lot of um, uh, people trace these ideas all the way back to the Declaration of Independence. And if you if you look at the Declaration of Independence and the reasons that we said that King George III was unfit to govern our country, um, some of the uh, injuries and usurpations that were listed include uh, he's refused to assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He's obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing courts. And he's taken away our charters and abolished our most valuable laws and fundamentally altered our forms of government. I think those are sort of some ideas uh, from our own Declaration of Independence about what someone might do that would make them uh, unfit to rule. Mike, before I turn it back over to you, I'd like to kind of say, since that's the direction you've taken taken the conversation, Ken, kind of to give the, uh, the the presidential political science background here, there is also kind of an interesting story from the framers in the Constitution, right? The Constitution lays out the impeachment process in Article 2, Section 4. Uh, the president and vice president and all other civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of tra- uh, treason, bribery, 
or in the other important phrase here, high crimes and misdemeanors. And I think one of the things we're going to probably be talking about is this question of high crimes and misdemeanors. And even at the Constitutional Convention itself, even if we're not going to be quite as uh, as the legal side pointing to things, uh, George Mason, he really wanted a broader term. James Matt, Madison wanted it to be, was worried about it limiting presidential power. Um, but really, most scholars kind of agree that that high crimes and misdemeanors doesn't actually have to be an actual crime per se. I mean, even John Jay in Federalist Number 64 argues just the threat of it is going to try to kind of help hold presidents accountable. Uh, and so, I mean, that, that's kind of the, the, the interesting bit, I think, from there. But Mike, what do you think about this? Well, I think first and foremost, that overturning an election is a incredibly serious thing. These are obviously incredibly serious charges. And so the way I'm looking at this is, well, well, how how would I feel compelled to act if I were a member of Congress? And first off, based on what we've heard, I'd absolutely in a second vote for an impeachment inquiry. I, no question about that. But then I'd feel obliged to interpret the results of that inquiry in a manner that was the most favorable to the president. In, in other words, giving him every benefit of the doubt I reasonably could, which is entirely different from what I do or, you know, urge other voters to do in an election. And so I, I'm not saying that I don't think that Donald Trump is unfit, but I am very careful about trying to substitute my judgment from that of the electorate, even though I think they made a horrible mistake. Well, can I ask you both a question on this front? Because I know uh, neither of you were in the Donald Trump um, cheering section. Uh, <laughs> and that is, as you kind of point out, Mike, uh, this is a process where you have to give the president the kind of the, the benefit of the doubt. But even if we move forward with the, um, which is going to happen, uh, with the inquiry, I mean, we're, we're closing in on the end of 2019. What's the real likelihood that this is going to be perceived as anything as time drags on, as meaningful, given that the election is going to come around, I think long before you could even imagine that the Senate would be finished with its process. What do you guys think about that? Can I can I take this one first, if that's sure. okay, Ken? Absolutely, um, yeah. You know, I've I've been I've struggled with this, but I come down on the fact that this is important not just for the Trump presidency, but for future presidencies. And if if things get to the point where there are clear indications that the president may have done things that make him clearly unfit for office and nothing is done because, well, there's an election around the corner. That seems to me to give future presidents essentially carte blanche to say, well, it's a year before the election. I guess I can start ignoring the law. And so I think that is a a horrific precedent to set. And at this point, there's so much that's out there that I feel just has to be investigated that uh, I think that there's no other there's no other uh, patriotic really course of action than to investigate. Ken, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree. Actually, I also want to agree with something you said earlier, um, uh, Trey. I, I do agree with you that um, there doesn't actually have to be a crime. And in fact, uh, Article 3 of the um, three articles against Richard Nixon didn't allege a crime. The first two did, but the third one alleged that um, uh, Nixon wasn't justified in resisting congressional subpoenas. And that, that's not actually a crime. Um, so I, I think that's absolutely right. I do think there are crimes here. And that's why I started by saying a criminal statute. Now, I'm not as uh, bothered by, uh, as Michael is, I guess, by the idea of overturning an election, because I don't believe that an impeachment could overturn an election. Mike Pence was elected um, in the same election that 
Donald Trump was elected in, and Mike Pence was elected for um, specifically to be the person who could assume the office of president if Donald Trump couldn't complete his term. So it seems to me that's all um, consistent with the election. It's not as if the Democrats would become president through the impeachment. They would just be making Mike Pence president. On the other hand, I, I agree with, I think, what, what one of Trey's implications, which is um, he's not actually going to be removed, right? So you have to think about this impeachment in terms of, is it is it the right thing to do, even given that the votes will will almost certainly not be there yeah. to remove him? And and so we don't really have to worry about overturning an election. But I do believe it's the right thing to do, and largely for similar reasons to what, what Mike just said. Well, let me kind of lay out the process of impeachment, because I think one of the things that a lot of uh, the, the uh, news stories have not covered is what's the real nitty gritty of, the, of uh, an impeachment process? Uh, and so I'm going to sound a little bit maybe like my American government uh, professor self here. Um, but it begins with the process that we're already talking about, this investigation. You're going to have a formal inquiry by the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, currently, Democrats hold 24 uh, uh, seats to the 17 seats of Republicans on the committee, which is completely normal. Uh, the party that has the majority holds the majority seats on, on these kinds of committees. Um, so once the formal inquiry ends with the Judiciary Committee, they have to determine whether or not they're going to draft articles of impeachment. And if they choose to, they then have to bring, as that's what you were noting a minute ago, Ken, uh, they have to bring those articles forward, and however many uh, they so choose, and each of those individual articles of impeachment have to be debated on the House floor. Now, currently, there are 235 Democratic House members and 191 Republicans, one independent. Yes, I know that doesn't add up to the right number, but that's because we've had a resignation. Um, then you got to vote on each of those articles of impeachment by the full chamber. And it just takes a majority on any specific article to mean that at that point, the president is formally impeached. So the president hasn't been impeached yet. That's what has to happen before it even becomes an impeachment. And at that moment, it then shifts over to the Senate where, where things are a lot different. Because here, uh, we have the uh, Republicans in the Senate are controlling it. Now, theoretically, if Mitch McConnell wanted it to happen... Uh, it's the U.S. Supreme Court justice, in this case, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, who would act as the judge effectively and the Senate itself as a jury. But there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the Senate has to do this. As a matter of fact, the Senate just, quote, has the sole power to try. It doesn't require the Senate to proceed. So even if the House uh, gentleman ends up impeaching the president and in a, in, in a time frame, what do you think are the implications for the Senate? Do they just ignore this? Do we move on? What do you think is going to happen there? Because I think that's interesting as well. One thing, Trey, I wanted to point out that happened in the last two impeachments, the Clinton and the Nixon impeachment, that does not appear will happen in this one is that the entire chamber actually voted to authorize an inquiry. And it looks like Nancy Pelosi is, uh, I'm guessing, kind of protecting maybe some of her members, I don't know, from especially her more moderate members and choosing not to do that. Now, that's that's not a requirement, but it's something that it looks like she won't be doing. Ken, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and what Mike just said, I, I I agree with you. It's probably partly to uh, protect the members, but I think there may also be some practical reasons because there already were a lot of uh, oversight inquiries going on in the different committees. And sure. so this is just a way to kind of keep those going without interrupting them, but ratchet up their significance. Um, on the issue of what McConnell will do, um, yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. Uh, I, I think McConnell will schedule uh, an impeachment trial if the House... Um, 
does does uh, vote articles of impeachment because although although I agree with you that he's a cunning guy and he he would be looking for you know what what what's what's serve, what's going to serve the Republicans the best I don't know that it would serve the Republicans the best to not schedule a trial because. Um, then the House and Lawrence Tribe has already advocated this. That Lawrence Tribe has said that the House should just run the impeachment trial in the House, and uh, and you know since there's never going to be removal anyhow, um, Tribe has argued why even send it to the Senate? Why not just run the whole thing in the House, and then the House Democrats can run it, and it really doesn't even matter if uh, if it ever gets to a vote or not because removal's not on the table anyhow. And I, I actually think McConnell will want to prevent that from happening because if there's an impeachment trial in the Senate. Then really he controls it, and even though Chief Justice Roberts formally presides over the trial, he does so under the Senate's parliamentary rules, which means that any ruling that Roberts makes um, can be overruled by a simple majority of the Senate, which McConnell controls. So I think there's some opportunities here for McConnell to make bigger mischief than just not scheduling it. For instance, um, you know, to the extent that that Trump wants to turn the impeachment trial into a platform. For him to bring a bunch of witnesses to talk about Hunter Biden's corruption in the Ukraine and stuff like that, you know, I imagine um, Roberts would probably make rulings that that stuff's not um, relevant, but the Senate could overrule those rulings, and then and then you know it could. So I think there's an opportunity to McConnell could maybe try to hijack these proceedings some. Now there's I want to get back to the the Bidens in a minute, but before we get to that, gentlemen, one of the things I wanted to kind of ask both of you is. So on this process, this week, Trump is very much, President Trump has more than ever felt backed into a corner to me. When I take a look at his Twitter feed, when I read his <laughs> statements, um, I'm not going to go through all of them right here. But the Thank one that you. stood yeah. <laughs> but the one that stood out to me the most is, is that he's announced that really effectively Nancy Pelosi isn't the Speaker of the House anymore. And that <laughs> comment to me, I mean, that. That strikes me as more than just unusual. It strikes me as a bit terrifying. And I, and I kind of wonder, what, do you, what are your, each of you kind of take that on? What, the comments from President Trump in the wake of this, such as the one I'm mentioning here about, you know, Nancy Pelosi's not even the speaker anymore. I mean, what does he even mean by that? Uh, I have some suggestions, but I'd like you guys to start first. Uh, the, the ravings of an unstable man. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, did you, I thought you were going to mention his other tweet last night. Did you see his 4 a.m. tweet where he went off against CNN for using a apostrophe after the word little? Well, and actually, he called it a hyphen. A hyphen. He called it a hyphen. He and called he it a hyphen, but he put an and apostrophe. He describing and, and, yeah, and I really... still don't know what little with an apostrophe. Anyway, I... Yeah. I, I At least thinking, Nixon had yeah. the excuse that he drank heavily. You know, <laughs> right, right, that's right. Trump's a teetotaler, but uh, he, uh, um, yeah. I mean, I think he, we were seeing a bit of a complete uh, breakdown last night. I mean, it, he he'll probably recover, but uh, even even with his, um, he's not always the most lucid person in the world. But uh, yeah, he really seemed to lose it last night on his Twitter feed. Well, I want to ask you guys maybe another question that might put us maybe a little bit differently because I think all three of us really agree about the gravity of what's happening here. I think we have a large agreement um, about Donald Trump. Uh, but one of the things that kind of keeps coming to my mind as you know, the, the libertarian-leaning conservative of the group is that isn't this kind of what we you know, libertarian guys have been arguing for a long time? You give too much power to the executive branch and bad things can happen because you never know when you're going to get somebody who's seemingly drunk when they're not. I mean, 
the, the less powerful the presidency, the less these kinds of moments would potentially matter. What do you, what, what do you both think about that? I agree with your argument in general, but I don't think it applies here. And, and that's just because when you go, I mean, one of the core functions of the president is to carry out foreign policy. And when suddenly your personal attorney seems to be an agent of foreign policy and part of your campaign and other things, I mean, that that's not libertarian. That That's just that's just criminal, it seems to me. I mean, so, yes, I agree with you, but I don't think it really applies here. I guess what I was suggesting, Mike, was that the power and the rhetorical power that we've offered the presidency as being, you know, the leader and in charge allows them kind of a, an unfortunate platform where they can push back on these kinds of, of wow. uh, issues. So I, I agree with you. I think the president was well within the bounds. You know, we're dealing with the foreign policy, but I'm talking about this idea that the president needs to be the center of uh, governmental and state life. And as, as a result... You know, he, he ends up getting more, I would say, bully pulpit than he might ought to be. Uh, Ken, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I share some of your concerns, but I guess um, in, in the case of Trump, a lot of what he's been doing is not actually powers that have been given to him. He's been violating a lot of laws. So um, now I guess part of your, your, your notion there is that if you empower somebody this much, it's hard to hold them accountable to law. And I think that's true. And actually, I think one of the flaws in our Constitution um, is that all the executive power is vested in one president. The, the, we have a unitary uh, executive in our Constitution. That's not true in most of the 50 state constitutions, right? So in the, in the state constitutions, it's very common to independently elect um, other executive officers, state attorney generals and things like that, so that they're not all just part of the um, uh, governor's administration, per se. They're yeah, and I think that's better. I think it's better to have more executive officers accountable to the people and not have them all um, accountable to the person at the top of the executive branch. So I, I, if that's an implication of what you're saying, Trey, I agree with you. It definitely. As a matter of fact, one of the things that made me maul that is one of the proposed uh, possibilities in the New Jersey plan at the Constitutional Convention was to actually have a plural executive, have three, so that if any one did anything particularly corrupt or outside, the other two could have, of course, immediately override them um, because it would take a majority vote for those things to move forward. Uh, so I agree with that, yeah. Ken. Now, George Washington George Washington opposed that one because he noticed that all the Roman triumvirates always ended up with two dead and one alive. <laughs> but, but I think something like that has worked well in Kentucky, where we are actually, where we have an attorney general who's elected and who's from the opposite party uh, from yeah. the governor. He does a great job watchdogging the governor, and I, I think that's a much better model. Now, yeah. here's kind of an implication. You were talking about this, Mike. Ken, you've talked about this. And that is kind of apart from the Trump's immediate issue here is the Bidens. And how does this work for Joe Biden? When this first came out, uh, um, former VP Biden was very kind of hesitant to strike at the president. And I think that's in large part because there is a weird and complicated relationship between Joe Biden and Hunter Biden uh, and, uh, and, and the Ukraine. As reported by uh, Bloomberg, um, Hunter has pursued business opportunities uh, with foreign parties, often in ways that have very obviously intersected with his father's work. And specifically what kind of brought this all about is in 2014, Hunter Biden joined the board for a natural gas company working in the Ukraine. Now, the founder of that company was potentially part of a corruption um, related to the former Ukrainian president. Uh, and now, the goal, theoretically, of Hunter Biden coming on 
was to kind of offer, as they said it, quote unquote, best practices. And he's going to end up receiving a little over $850,000 for his service at the same exact time that Joe Biden was involved with a ton of diplomacy in ways that uh, overlapped with the interests of both the company and with Hunter Biden. And it included uh, uh, Vice President, then at the time, Joe Biden, um, threatening to withhold a $1 billion loan. Now, both Joe Biden and Hunter Biden argue that they have never spoke on those kinds of issues. But the fact that the VP, as he's running against Trump, was not really willing to come out, it makes me a little hesitant. I mean, that I think Trump is in a ton of trouble, but does this suggest that uh, Biden may not be able to become a front runner for long? I mean, if, if we're going to investigate this, doesn't this kind of be potentially problematic for the Bidens? What do you guys think about that as well? Well, he's not going to be a front runner on Fox News, I guess. But that story, <laughs> I mean, that the story has just been so twisted out of all proportion to anything that's reality here, especially given the fact that if, if anyone looks at the actual facts of the story, Joe Biden was acting against that company's interest by urging that corrupt prosecutor who was, by the way, also being kind of uh, pursued to be taken out of office by the EU and the IMF to actually investigate that company and more companies like it. So this story, if you if you look at it for even 10 seconds, seriously, completely falls apart. And I think it's just an example of the Trump administration just throwing as much crap as they can against the wall and, you know, hoping some of it will stick to Joe Biden. Mike, what do you, or um, excuse me, uh, Ken, what do you think? Yeah, Mike said that better than I could have, but I, I agree with him. But I, um, I, I don't think Democrats are ever going to care about this. Um, on the other hand, I'm going to stick with a prediction I made at the very beginning of the uh, when, when uh, almost a year ago, when we were talking about who are all the candidates going to be. We did. We did. I, I, I said, I said Biden's going to be the front runner through 2019, but he's not going to be the nominee, and and I'm going to stick with that prediction. I don't think this is going to be what does him in, but I just think. He started off with very huge advantages in terms of name recognition and connections and things like that. But I think the other candidates, you know, gained that through the campaign. And over time, um, I just I just don't see that he's the he's the most in step with today's Democrats. Um, but I, I don't I don't believe, though, that this is the beginning of the end for him or anything like that. I hear you. I will say that this whole process for me is just an example of why we never Trumpers were always right. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to say I told you so to all of my colleagues who disagreed with me on that front from within my own ranks. And this is what we get. Um, and this is what we're dealing with now. And we could have had a really easy 2020 had we picked literally any other person, including like my eight year old son, if he would have been eligible for the requirements. <laughs> Um, yeah. but that, again, that's, that's my take on that. I recognize that is not, um, going to necessarily be the, the, the mainline Republican stance, but I'm, I have, I'm, anyway, that's my, there's my final take on that. You know, I, I just want to say as my final take, there is, uh, for at least people on the left, the nightmare scenario here of the impeachment backlash, the energized Trump supporters. And, and, and you take a look at the balance right now, it's not outside of the realm of possibility to imagine, uh, you know, January 2021, President Trump with a Democrat, sorry, with Republican House and and Senate. And wow, that would be a, I got to say, a huge bummer. What do you think, Ken? Is that possible? 
Well, anything, anything's possible, but um, if, okay, if is it Mike's likely? Impl- yeah, <laughs> if Mike's implication is that the impeachment would appreciably make that more likely, I don't really think I agree. I think um, the the majority of Americans right now um, uh, give Trump a negative approval rating, and I think for people who already give Trump a negative approval rating, the things they see in the impeachment are not going to make them sympathetic to Trump. So I, I think there's bigger numbers, and there's a highly motivated um, electorate. Um, to get Trump out. And uh, although I do agree with Mike that an impeachment will energize Trump's base, I, I think they're outnumbered. So I, I don't think yeah. that gets them anywhere. I, I, I want to say, Ken, that I definitely hope you're right <laughs> on all of that. On the line. Well, I will say, I mean, we don't have the most recent polling data, but as of the last moment we had, uh, you know, the number for negatives for Trump, it didn't go way up. But when you break it out by party, really the only movement, it was not in independents or in Republicans. It was in Democrats who are now uh, nearly unanimous in their desire to see President Trump uh, impeached. But of course, you know, they're not, they weren't going to vote for him anyway. Uh, but we'll have to see what those numbers come out. I, I would be most interested here in a week out and two weeks out. I, I think it's a little too early to to, to know specifically, but it, it, we haven't seen it yet. Oh, can, I, can I say one more thing about that? You know, history is long. And I know a lot of people look at the Clinton impeachment and say, well, he got sort of strengthened by the failed impeachment. But I don't think that was true in the prior ones. Um, you know, Nixon, who didn't go through an impeachment because he resigned, um, you know, Jimmy Carter was able to beat Ford right after that. And uh, um, the similarly, Andrew Johnson, who survived an impeachment, his party more or less collapsed right after that. So I, th- I think Clinton's actually the odd man out in terms of being um, strengthened by an impeachment. Well, I hear you. Well, gentlemen, do we have any last final any last final words on <laughs> Ukraine and impeachment? <laughs> well, I just want to say thanks, guys, for letting me butt in on this story. I have to uh, I have to go, but I wanted to let listeners know if you want to hear from essentially the entire rest of the team, we're setting up a four person quick take uh, for, for basically to talk about this story. And it'll be joining me will be uh, Kristen, Jay and Will. And so that should be I think that should be a lot of fun. And as a reminder, those quick takes are for supporters at any level, correct? At uh, $5 a month or above. $5 and above for the month. Yep. So another great reason to bump yourself to $5 to get the uh, the multi-headed uh, Ukraine Trump impeachment quick take this week. Absolutely. Hey, take care, guys. Thanks, Thanks so Mike. much for letting me butt Thank, in. Bye. Thanks, Thanks for stopping in. Well, Ken, it's just you and me again as we move forward, right? All right. Yeah. <laughs> We had you. We had you outnumbered for a little bit there. Too, you know, you <laughs> <Hey>. Well, <laughs> it's, that's always the case. I mean, listen, yeah. I, I'm an academic who's a, a libertarian-leaning conservative. I'm just used to that. If anything, <laughs> maybe my numbers were slightly better as a percentage today uh, <laughs> than they are on a daily basis. Um, but uh, but be that as it may, I think we want to move on. So another story that we can take on, and maybe it's a good thing that Mike isn't here for this one, Ken, because this might be one. Or should we should make like Colorado and inhale? I don't know if, if you're willing. Uh, <laughs> I, you're too far away to pass. So we're just going to have to puff, puff, sit. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, this Wednesday, in a vote of 321 to 103, uh, congressional House lawmakers approved a bill now headed to the Senate, which would allow legitimate cannabis business to have access to banking services 
even though still technically uh, cannabis is a federal crime. It's really kind of a weird location for the law, as currently 33 states in the union allow for some form of legal cannabis use. But banks, for a lot of uh, important reasons, have not been willing to do business with them because they fear that they could end up being prosecuted under federal law, especially um, kind of criminal syndicism issues. So while in the House, nearly all Democrats, and I thought kind of um, tellingly, about half of Republicans supported the bill, it's not clear that it has the same amount of support in the Senate or if even the Senate's going to vote on the measure. In the Senate, there's a lot of question about whether or not this is just a stopgap, and it doesn't really address the issue of underlying criminalization. And of course, there's also uh, more hardliners who argue that this is just one more teeny chip in the armor against uh, a potentially dangerous drug becoming legalized. So, Ken, thoughts on um, inhaling in Congress on Wednesday? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think it's um, the the, the big question, which is the one you really hit at the end, is uh, what what Congress is going to do about the Controlled Substances Act itself, because it's it's still illegal under federal law everywhere in the United States to uh, possess or consume any any significant quantity of marijuana. And, you know, because so many states have been legalizing it, um, both President Obama and President Trump have had enforcement policies for federal enforcement where they've just decided to non-enforce in federal law in the states where it's legal, uh, by and large. And that's that's not really a sustainable legal framework. There's got something's got to be done. Um, but in terms of the the financial aspect of it, the banking aspect of it, um, I think this is fairly essential because these marijuana businesses are cash businesses. There there's huge amounts of cash. It's it's a real public safety and security issue. You know, there's sort of uh, they're sort of prime targets for armed robberies and things like that if they can't take their money to the bank. And uh, I, I think, you know, it, it, it just it just seems crazy to allow a business to exist and make it deal totally in cash. So I I, I think no matter what you think about um, marijuana, even if you don't want marijuana dispensaries nearby, it's probably better to have marijuana dispensaries nearby that can put their money in the bank than marijuana dispensaries nearby that just also have tons and tons of cash nearby. Now, so this is, kind of, I think, and this kind of overlaps with what the Senate is grappling with, and that's the question of, is should Congress be kind of, this is kind of a way to let states get away with having laws that don't appear to be in compliance with federal law. So by passing this, are you just, aren't you just really saying, look, we need, we just need to have this decriminalized because otherwise you as you were already noting that this kind of this exists in a bizarre space to me yeah i mean there's other thing you could think of other analogs to this right so like you have needle exchange programs for intravenous drug users even though the intravenous drug use is illegal so i think sometimes there could be situations where society thinks, well, there's an activity that ought to be illegal, but also taking account of reality, which is that people are going to do it even if it's illegal, we could try to think of ways to minimize the harms. So I don't think that's crazy, but I, I think it, it is what is crazy is to have a federal law that's only enforced in some states, I mean, we, which is the, the Controlled Substances Act itself. I think there it should be um, Congress should decide are they gonna are they gonna um, uh, relax it uh, or even or even repeal it? I, I doubt they'd repeal it, but have some kind of relaxation. They have some kind of procedure for states to opt out um, as the as the Clean Air Act does, and we're gonna we'll talk about that later on today's show, I think. Uh, but uh, but the uh, you know they, I think they just got to do something. It's really not conducive to the rule of law to have a federal law that's in effect everywhere 
and just have it not being enforced in some places. Well, it, it's always, I always find it a, a unique circumstance which side Republicans and Democrats find themselves when they're arguing on the federalism argument, right? Yeah. Because on this issue, we kind of see it being flipped. You have, I think, a lot of Democrats kind of saying, well, look, states are, are making this push. They're in violation of federal. So we need to keep up with them, uh, and which is generally kind of what Republicans are pushing for. And uh, Democrats are wanting more kind of uniform standards. So I mean, this is I think it's also kind of an awkward uh, bill for both parties in that it is counterintuitive to their at least more often taken positions. What do you think about that, especially um, being someone on the left? Yeah, you know, I think marijuana is an issue that um, both both parties are have coalitions within their parties that don't see eye to eye with each other on these issues. So, you know, with Republicans, you've got libertarians like you and you've got, you know, social conservatives, and they probably don't see eye to eye on this issue. And with um, Democrats, I think you have... Um, you know, a certain constituency that thinks the government should be um, making laws that help protect people from various kinds of um, health and safety harms. And, and so people like that might favor drug laws. And then you also have um, civil libertarians and people like that um, uh, as well, um, or just hippies who like marijuana. You know, and so, <laughs> so I think you have, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, I think I think it, it's it's a, it's a cross cutting issue. And I think as far as I know, the main lobbyist for the marijuana industry is John Boehner, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's another party cross-cutting thing there, I think. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's one of those issues um, where it doesn't break out on, on partisan lines. It seems to break out maybe a lot more on geographic lines or even on demographic lines, where I think almost all young people favor marijuana legalization. And uh, um, and then, you know, older people, um, you know, have, might have different views on that. You know, and it's I think it's really an opportunity. I I don't think the driving factor here is, and I've noticed that some have argued that, you know, this is going to make um, uh, racial uh, encounters with uh, police officers and others better. I think that is, in fact, what will happen. I don't think that's the big push here, but I'm surprised that there isn't a bigger push, especially on both sides to say, well, here's kind of a win-win where we both fix some social inequality issues at the same time as we clean, uh, clean up this interaction between the conflict between federal and state law. Uh, but it seems like it's going to continue to kind of drag out because, again, I don't see the Senate taking this up. Um, any last thoughts on that, Ken? Uh, were you talking about just the financial services aspect of it? Or were you talking about marijuana legalization itself? Marijuana legalization itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. I guess I, I have a hard time because I, I really think it will harm the public health. You know, I think when it comes, I think, you know, a lot of kids are going to start smoking it more than now. You know, if you look at how many more people drink alcohol now than use illegal drugs, you know, because alcohol is legal and, and, you know, illegal drugs, there's some people that don't want to do illegal things. And, and, uh, and just the mere fact that something is legal makes, I think, makes it seem safer, makes people think, well, the government wouldn't legalize it if it could really hurt you that badly. You know, and alcohol does a lot of damage to people. And I think marijuana is going to do a lot of different kinds of damage to people. So I don't really I don't really love the idea of um, marijuana use going way up. But just like you, uh, I, I I do think that criminalization hasn't hasn't done any anything great for anybody. So I, I don't. Yeah, I, I find it a hard issue. Now, kind of the final thought on that is, do you think one of the reasons this is particularly difficult is, is that vaping is such 
in the political in the political and the public's mind at the moment? Oh, I don't know. Um, you have to tell me about that. What, what, what's, how, in what way is vaping in the public and political mind right well, now? Well, we've had a number of individuals, uh, big line stories this week where um, teens have had serious respiratory issues with vaping and a number of states calling for the ban on um, vaping and vaping products. Yeah, well, that's a, I guess I didn't know that, but that's analogous to the kind of problems I'm talking about. I think the more people think that um, the more normal and mainstream these kind of products seem, you know, the more people are going to feel like, well, I might as well use them. Everybody uses them. You know, they're not illegal, whatever. And uh, and it, it does cause serious public health problems. Well, I want to move on to another story, Ken. And I think this is one where we're either going to agree a lot or we're going to we're going to have the biggest disagreement we've ever had. Okay. Uh, and that is uh, the Census Bureau's report on economic uh, well-being. This week, the U.S. Census Bureau released its report on income and poverty in the United States for 2018. Uh, and the broad takeaway that was aired in the news was inequality is at a 50-year high. Now, there's a lot of other major takeaways from the report. I'm going to kind of go through these. One, the median household income, um, it didn't rise significantly this year from 2017 after three years of increases. It now sits at $63,179. The median earnings of all workers did increase by 3.4% to $40,247. The number of full-time year-round workers increased by $2.3 million. Uh, Poverty, again, decreased for the fourth consecutive annual decline by 0.5%. Um, It was also the first time in 11 years uh, that the poverty rate was lower than at the most recent recession. And finally, the biggest takeaway uh, was that the number of people in poverty dropped by 1.4 million. So meanwhile, though, inequality has continued to trend upward. As a matter of fact, over the last five decades, inequality has climbed a little bit higher and a little bit higher. Uh, And we measure this with something that's called the Gini scale. It uh, ranges from zero to one, where zero would be everyone has the same exact everything. It's a maximum equality. uh, And one is maximum inequality. And this year, it sits at 0.485, its highest ever. So Ken, what's your takeaway Uh, from the U.S. Census Bureau's report. Yeah, I mean, I could already hear from the way you were presenting some of the data that that your interpretation of this might be that um, the poor are not actually getting any poor. It's just that the rich are getting richer. Is is am I am I was I reading that right? Is that is that was was that what you took from that? I, I well, my kind of oh. fundamental argument is is that while inequality is problem is undoubtedly getting bigger, I don't disagree mm-hmm. with the findings here uh, that the average person's well-being continues to rise. To rise, right. Yeah, that's what I thought you were saying. So that it wasn't that the poor are not being harmed by the mere fact that the rich are pulling further and further away from them. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I I, I um, think more equality would be better. So uh, so I guess that, yeah, that's what probably what we, you were expecting is that <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think... I, I, well, I was positive. Is, yeah, I, you know, I didn't yeah. want to assume. No, yeah, I don't think this is great. Um, you know, the number that you mentioned, that, that um, 0.485... So that's been going up uh, um, since they started. I guess they started making these numbers in 1967. That's correct. And so in 1967, the Gini index in America was 0.397. Now it's up to 0.485. So that's not only is that a steady climb, but if you compare that to Europe, 
uh, Europe is still below that point three point that that point three nine seven where we started, right? So we we had inequality in 1967 that's got worse every year, and in Europe they still don't have inequality as bad as we had in 1967. Um, so I I think that does cause uh, uh, harms in our society. It, it's not not only is it not good to have poverty, but it's not good to have um, people that have so much wealth that they have uh, really outsized uh, political power, I think that's that's harmful to our democracy. So now you're just making, I think, kind of a straightforward argument uh, that there's a point at which people shouldn't be able to have a certain amount of money. Am I hearing that correctly, Ken? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess it depends how you think about it, but I would be, um, I'm very much in favor of Elizabeth Warren's proposal for a, a wealth tax, and I think the wealth tax is is getting at that idea that once once you have these billionaires out there, um, it's not just their income you want to tax; it's their wealth. And the reasons that you want to tax their wealth is, you know, partly because it's the easiest way to get money to to run the government, and then you don't have to tax other people as much. But also partly because it's actually just by having that much money they're inflicting harm on other people. And I, I do believe that. Now, now, here's where I think we have that kind of um, disagreement. And so I, I would really like to kind of hear your case for this in, in all honesty, Ken. Why is it that someone having more money is intrinsically a moral issue? Now, I can understand where actively harming or bringing other, uh, you know, these numbers come down. But what yeah. you're saying is just the absolute value of having it. So convince me. Why well, I didn't I didn't say it was a moral issue, but I said it is inflicting harm on other people. So I think the fact. But if you're inflicting you have, harm, I mean, isn't that inherently a, a moral problem? Well, it, I mean, it may not be an intentional. Is is all I'm saying. Okay, I see. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, continue. Yeah. Continue. Right. So you you could have people like the Koch brothers out there who, you know, by their own lights, I I think they think they're helping the country. Right. I mean, I think they have a vision of the country, and they put a lot of money into advancing their vision of the country. And I don't say that that's immoral, but I say that the the fact that they are able to have so much more influence on our politics than ordinary people are allowed to have, it, it takes away our democracy. It's not because they're doing anything that they shouldn't be doing, but it's the, the, the fact that they are in that position where when they go out and do the same thing that we're going out and doing, you know, they they talk about their political ideas, um, but they can back it up uh, um, in in ways that actually make um, uh, all, you know, elected officials and and you know all the levers of, of government you know have to actually do what they say. And uh, so I think that harms everybody else. I think I think to have a democracy, you've got to have some semblance of um, not well, you got to not have an oligarchy. It's one or the other, I guess, is really what I'm thinking. Well, I mean, I, I guess to kind of push back on that a little bit. I mean, our system is not a democracy. It's it's a Republican system. And I, I don't mean that as a Republican right. party, but as, as a Republican right. uh, uh, system of government listeners. Uh, and, and on top of that, so what you're suggesting is, so we've set up a system whereby uh, we allow people to use their uh, speech equality with their money. Uh, and so what you're, it seems like what you're saying is, is because that's possible, therefore I should be able to tax you. But wouldn't that really just say that there's deeper structural problems with allowing that to be the kind of system we have rather than with the money? Because if we can get, if we can get rid of that influence in other ways, then it seems like your argument would be met uh, without having to argue that uh, inequality in and of itself is inherently a bad thing. Well, I, I think extreme inequality is, is inherently a bad thing. I don't think some inequality is inherently a bad thing, right? The Elizabeth Warren, when she talks about the wealth tax, she's only talking about 
starting it for people who have more than $50 million, right? So there's a lot of inequality as between people who have, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars versus people who have $50 million. But, 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 but that's, you know, that's within still the tolerable realm of inequality, I think. But when you, when you start getting, um, again, let me compare it to something like sports, right? So you have, you know, professional sports, major league sports, and they have a draft. Right. And so the teams that do the worst each year get the earliest draft picks the next year because there's this idea that um, it's just better for the league and better for the fans um, if we try to maintain some kind of parity between the teams. And if we don't just let one team get so much better than all the other teams, because now that they're doing better, they'll make more money. And now that they're making more money, they can use that money to do even better. You know, it, it would kind of ruin the league. And, and I think that that's you know, it's not exact on all fours with democracy, but I think it's an analogy for the way I'm thinking about this, that, that uh, a society where everybody can participate um, uh, is better than a society where, um, you know, it, it really just a, a small group is pulling all the strings. So I have then I have two kind of uh, questions about that. One is, is that in your analogy there, you're suggesting what the NFL has is a zero sum game. Um, but what I'm suggesting here is that economic circumstances are, are not a zero sum game and that uh, the in, there is no fixed amount of pie. Uh, and that's why I kind of point towards uh, numbers increasing in the United States. As a matter of fact, the, the kind of the recent course of human history has been uh, a lowering of extreme and global poverty overall. Uh, so I'm, I'm still not quite hearing uh, what, I mean, other than kind of the analogy that suggests yeah. that that is fundamentally wrong, except for what you right. argued a minute ago, which was, look, they can get involved too uh, deeply in the political system with their money. But yeah. of course, if we changed the political system in a way in which money was not equivalent to speech, wouldn't that satisfy your uh, complaint without actually uh, changing anything to economic systems? Yeah. So first of all, I mean, I, I, I meant to say that my concerns are political, right? Oh, so, OK. OK. Yeah. 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 So that the, the idea, you know, and, and politic, political power is a zero sum game, right? So it's um, so the economic system may not be a zero sum game, but the political system is a zero sum game. And if if billionaires have all the power, then other people don't have that power. Um, it's not really possible for them to have all the power and for other people also to have a lot of power. Um, and then in terms of um, the, but couldn't the you restructure, system, but can't you restructure? I mean, isn't the argument here? I think we've agreed read on this before, uh, that the American Republic has unfortunately made dollars the kind of system buying it is through the mechanisms of electoral systems that we have. So couldn't we alter the electoral systems as opposed to trying to monkey with the economic one? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying that's not possible, but I, I don't know what the benefit of trying to do that would be. I don't I don't see I guess I don't fundamentally see that there's a great harm to trying to tax people that have more than $50 million um, on their wealth. I, I, I think I, I so I wouldn't I wouldn't want to rework the whole uh, um, uh, political system that we have just to avoid taxing the people with more than $50 billion. I, I, I think it's you know, that's that's I don't see that that is a great harm to anybody. And I think it would be more uncertain about you know how we would go about rewiring our whole uh, political system, or 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 whether we'd want to have um, uh, different kinds of restrictions on freedom of speech. I'd rather let everybody have maximum freedom of speech, let everybody who has a printing press use it, but I don't I don't want to see one person owning all the printing presses. Now, while I hear and I understand that, what I will say is that, and I, I understand like Elizabeth Warren number you've put it out, you know the uh, five hundred million and up, uh, but I, I don't see why that is the line. And as a result, I think anytime you're depriving people 
of their life, their liberty, and their property, we need to have some really good reasons. And, uh, you know, while I, you know, I, I don't particularly, I'm not making that kind of money, uh, but why there? I mean, you could then make the argument, well, anybody over 100 million or over whatever yeah. amount. I mean, look at globally, and there's no reason to even make it a million for that matter. Right. Her, uh, her numbers, her numbers, 50 million. But I think, I think that's oh, a 50 good million, number. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I think the, 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 again, it goes to the idea that the real concerns are political more than economic, right? That, um, but that, that's, once, that's once a political into... issue. You have a right. You have a right to your things. You have a right to you and the things that you've earned and created. I mean, that's that is uh, that's even part of our own Declaration of Independence coming out well, of block. But, but the, you know, I mean, our, our constitution also has uh, uh, various parts in it that allow for taxation, um, including the 16th Amendment with income taxation, but even including the tax and clauses of Article 1, Section 8. But, but, the, uh, um, but the thing about the, the 50 million line that I think makes it a good line is that I, I, I think it, it's fine to let people, you know, make and keep and spend, you know, as much money as they could actually use in their lives. But when you get up to, when you get up to num numbers that big, then the main thing that the, the main benefit, what, what good is it to a person to have a hundred million instead of 50 million? Mainly it's going to be about the way they're going to exert power over other people. It's not just about the way they're going to live their own life. And so I think they're always creating negative externalities by having that power to exert over other people. Whereas if someone has 5 million, 10 million, and they, they buy a really nice uh, house on the beach and a really nice apartment in Manhattan and, you know, whatever, that's fine. I don't begrudge them that. But I think when you get into these stratospheric numbers, you know, and they've already got all the houses and apartments and cars that they want, and now they start thinking, well, how can I, um, you know, how can, how can I use this money to exercise power over other people? Um, I, I think they're causing me harm by even existing, and I, I'd rather see them uh, not have that money and not have that ability to do that. I mean, I, could, I understand that position, but I, you know, I'll say that I, what concerns me is, is that there, I don't think there's any particular reason why you're going to pick one. You, see, you say, well, when you get $5 million, that's okay, but I don't think your argument really has a number that makes a logical, I mean, you're, you're trying to say, well, at some point, once you have too much. But that's a really kind of, I think, a vague position to take to say, well, I'm going to take off, uh, you know, your ability to produce because it's, in my opinion, too much. I mean, again, uh, the, the social contract in the United States Constitution allows for taxing policies, but I'd argue that it really wasn't intended to be used as a redistribution set of policies. That's something that we've added on to it later. As a matter of fact, your specific argument there about uh, only so much you can use, I mean, that's a long-standing uh, political ph philosophic question. Uh, and, and most of the philosophers who we very much grabbed onto to create our system suggested that one of the reasons you abandon the state of nature is so that you can store things beyond, or as uh, John Locke himself called it, right? You can move beyond having to be able to use immediately uh, the things that you produce. So I, I think we probably have a bit of a, so we, we agree on the, uh, on what's happening. We disagree deeply, I think for the, uh, on something for one skin. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, the one thing I want to say though, is that um, the, 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 with taxation, it, it could always seem arbitrary where the lines are drawn, right? But that's an inherent problem in taxation. So if you want to have something like an income tax, which the 16th amendment authorizes, and you want to have a progressive income tax where uh, people pay higher rates as their income gets higher, then you have to draw lines somewhere between, you know, where's the end of one bracket and the beginning of the next. And the mere fact that that, that particular location where that line is drawn um, might seem arbitrary, 
that's fundamentally not different than any other kind of legal line. You know, why is the speed limit on the highway 55 instead of 60? You know, there's a, there's sort of a lot of places where you just think, well, there has to be a speed limit and you just have to pick one that seems reasonable. And you could pick another one. But but if you're going to do these kind of things, you know, I think the argument that there's no magic number at 50 million, you know, it doesn't really move me that much because the point is it's just about trying to pick some number that could be reasonable. Um, it, you could easily pick another number, but that's what legislatures are for is just to make those line drawing exercises. Well, I, I will agree with you on that front, but I guess where I disagree is it's not just about the line. It's about that I don't see that there is a fundamental moral principle that I can apply that suggests, as what you're suggesting is, is that inequality in and of itself uh, is an inherent harm in a, a well-created or managed state. Um, so I, I hear what you're saying there, and I, and I wouldn't try to agree that every single line has to have um, a perfect. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things that I'll admit that I struggle with um, on a philosophic level is, you know, how, how and when do we get the moral ability to coerce others to do um, what we think they ought to do, which is what states are fundamentally doing. Um, but that is a conversation for another show. <laughs> um, yeah, we could talk about this forever, but uh, listeners, I believe we've actually gone on a lot longer than we had intended. So I hope this was uh, useful, interesting. But Ken, I really appreciate you just kind of talking about this uh, in a kind and friendly way with me, because I think this is this is the kind of cool conversations we get to have on the politics, guys. Great. Um, so what I do want to say, though, listeners, is we got a lot of really fun things happening uh, this week. And that is, is don't forget that right as we get done, we're going to be doing, Ken, myself, a bonus show. Uh, and the bonus show is one of those items uh, that su is supporters exclusive. Uh, and this week, we're actually going to be talking uh, about two items. We're going to be talking about uh, the California's recent ruling in favor of Trump being on the ballot. Um, we're also going to be talking uh, about Israeli elections. So I really hope uh, that you'll go ahead and become a subscriber, a supporter, so that you can get that. Also, just as a reminder, don't forget this week, as Mike talked about, the quick take is going to be on the Ukraine issue, and it's going to be our first ever four-person politics, guys. It's going to be Mike, Jay, Kristen, and Will. And so I hope you'll join them as well. $5 or more makes you a supporter able to get our weekly quick takes. If you are a supporter, those should be in your podcast app by the time you hear this. And that's just one of the many supporters only items we have for you. Now, if you want to become a supporter and get all of these additional shows and more, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics guys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. If you've got questions, comments, corrections, or even just some random thought you'd like to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and we post throughout the week, we have some really uh, great conversations that happen there, is at facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. Subscribing, of course, to the show really helps, but so does sharing our episodes, posting them on social media, sharing them just with one friend who you think might benefit from listening to the politics, guys. Word of mouth really is the best advertising, and I have to tell you that all of us each deeply appreciate it. Additionally, leaving reviews and ratings and whatever podcast app you use also helps immensely. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andra Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show was produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.